Amen and amen. All right, open up your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel, whether you have an uh, old school Bible or an app on your phone or a photographic memory, <laughs> you still have to open it up in that thing too. Daniel chapter 3, because we are currently in a series entitled, She Who Is in Babylon, which is a phrase that was used by the Apostle Peter towards the end of his first letter to describe the church in Rome in his day. She, the church who is in Babylon, Rome. And we have seen that it is a phrase that could also be used to describe the church in America today because the same proud, rebellious, God-rejecting spirit that dominated ancient Babylon and ancient Rome is also very alive and well within our own culture and society today. This was not always the case several decades ago. The cultural institutions of our society, like government or arts or academia, media, they were at the very least mildly supportive of the Christian faith. This is no longer the case and hasn't been for some time. We once lived in a Christian culture, but we do not now. And in that respect, we have a lot in really a connection with Daniel because Daniel once lived in a very God-centered culture in Jerusalem, and now he lives in a very godless culture of Babylon. And so we can learn a lot from his life by the way he handled that transition. In a way, we're all kind of like Daniel. We're trying to live a life of faith before God, before God while living in present-day Babylon, under the spirit of Babylon. So again, we can learn a lot from Daniel and also from the book that bears his name, and that brings us to the third chapter this morning, which is probably one of the more well-known narratives from the book of Daniel, like chapter 2. Chapter 3 involves King Nebuchadnezzar, but unlike chapter 2, chapter 3 does not include Daniel, but instead Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And since the text is long, let's keep the introduction short. Amen? Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. Now, we left off uh, last week, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of chapter 2, came to the realization that Daniel's God is God. He is the God of all gods, and he is the Lord of all kings because he had granted Daniel uh, both the content of his dream and the interpretation of his dream. So apparently now, chapter 2, verse 1, some time must have gone by. And his original experience with God has greatly diminished in its effect. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar is back to being Nebuchadnezzar. He had a genuine experience with God, but he was not fundamentally changed. And we talked about that last week, how you can actually have a moment with God and yet never be saved, never be forgiven your sins. This was Nebuchadnezzar's condition. 
So he gathers all the VIPs, all the officials, and all the people from all the nations that were a part of uh, the Babylonian kingdom. They're all assembled. And then verse 4, the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So when all the people that had gathered together heard the National Philharmonic Orchestra strike the tune, everybody conformed. Everybody, everybody bowed down before the image of gold. Why? Well, many bowed because they were indebted to the king. Some bowed because they wanted something from the king. Some bowed because, well, they just wanted to be accepted by everybody else. They wanted to be a part of society, and so they just went along with what everybody else was doing. But most people, I think, simply bowed out of the fear of the repercussions being burned alive. But the big question is, that we have to ask really, is why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? Now there are some people, and one common answer says that Nebuchadnezzar himself wanted to be worshiped. But nowhere in this text does it state once that this statue was the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Not one time in the passage. Neither is there any indication that the statue was an image of one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It was simply a 90-foot-tall, 9-feet-wide golden statue with no name, no designation, simply called the image of gold. So, if Nebuchadnezzar did not make the image of gold for people to worship him, why, why did he do it? Well, I think for one reason, control. Let me explain what I mean by that. The probable reason for commanding worship of the golden image was to solidify control over the diverse people groups that were a part of his empire. Remember when the herald addressed the people? He addressed all the leaders of Babylon. Then he also says, and all the peoples of every language. Babylon was a very cosmopolitan place. There were people from all over the world there. The reason is, is because just like Nebuchadnezzar went out and conquered Jerusalem and the Jewish people and brought them back, he did that with many other nations and peoples as well. And to effectively rule over such a diverse group of people, they needed a common God. Because see, here they're coming from all their various nations and areas, and they're bringing their gods with them. They're bringing their customs with them. But to have unity, Nebuchadnezzar surmises we have to have one God that everybody bows down to. Now, be, to be clear, Nebuchadnezzar was not demanding that everyone bow to this one religion. He was not saying to the Jews, you can no longer be a Jew. He was basically saying, you need to adopt this new religion and put it at the top of your list. In other words, demote your God for this God. You don't have to get rid of your God, just demote your God. The idea was you could privately worship your ancestral gods in your own house, but when you are in public, you must worship the image of gold. Yes, there are many gods and they all have their place, but if you want to be a part of this society, 
If you want to fit in in this culture, you must bow down to the one God that everybody bows down to, in this case, the image of gold. So the image of gold probably did not represent Nebuchadnezzar or a single Babylonian god. It represented instead all the values and all of the beliefs and ideologies of Babylon. In essence, it represented the state of Babylon. Today, we would call this statism, which is kind of a precursor, if you will, to socialism and communism. Statism is the idea that the government, not God, is the ultimate authority. That the government, not God, is the ultimate source of all that we need. And that it's in our best interest to allow the government or the state to take care of us and rule over all aspects of our lives. Statism. This, of course, flies right in the face of biblical truth, which reveals God not the state, is ultimate authority. God, not the state, is the ultimate source of everything. And it is in our best interest to look to God and to worship him as he governs over us. Now, the Bible teaches us that the state is not God, but rather the servant of God. Romans 13, 1. The state is is the servant of God, and as a servant of God, we are to obey it. It's God's delegated authority for our benefit. In chapter 2, we read something like that when, you know, Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar thought that, you know, he had, he had made this kingdom for himself, and God says, no, 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 you have that kingdom because I gave it to you. You have that authority because I gave it to you. Later on in Daniel's prayer, he prays, God raises up one king, and he takes down another. He does whatever he wills. The fact that God raises up rulers and governments, though, does not give them unlimited power. They are responsible to God. And believers are to remind them of that fact. Whether they acknowledge God or not doesn't make any difference. And when the state oversteps its God-given authority and assumes the place of God instead of being the servant of God, and coerces you to violate your conscience in a way that violates biblical truth, the state should be resisted in order to worship God. That's what's going on in Babylon. That's what's going on in our story. See, now in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, the way you proved your allegiance to the state was by bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's decree. Now, the same thing is true in modern Babylon. The way you prove your allegiance is you bow down to whatever the state decrees, even when it violates biblical truth. See, the state says, you will honor marriage between two people of the same sex, or you will be sued. You will bake this wedding cake, or you'll lose your business. You will use these pronouns or be expelled from our school. You will close down your church or you will be fined. You will believe the way we want you to believe. You will bow down to the golden image. So it turns out we have a lot more in common with the Jewish residents of ancient Babylon than we might have originally thought. Babylon says bow. God says don't bow. 
commandment number two. You shall not bow to any any image because commandment number one, you shall have no other God before me. So here we are, here's the scene. There's tens of thousands of people encircling this shining golden statue waiting for the national orchestra to play. And obviously this was an event that took some time to accomplish just because of the logistics of it all. And apparently in the midst of the whole production, verse eight informs us that some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now remember the astrologers from chapter two, they were the ones that could not tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, they could not give him the interpretation of the dream, and in fact their lives were actually saved by Daniel because he did tell the king the dream and the interpretation. And apparently they have some problems, but this wasn't just kind of a general anti-Semitism because their beef was really not with all the Jews, but with three in particular, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the reason was, probably, was jealousy. Because when Daniel told the king the interpretation of the dream, he was so impressed with Daniel's God that he exalted Daniel to a high position in the king's court, and he took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he made them rulers over some of the provinces, and perhaps those magicians, whatever they were, they were in line for those same positions, and they got leapfrogged, and they had a a little bit of an issue with that. They had some sour grapes. They had an ax to grind, and what a perfect moment to seize to get some retribution on these guys. So that's what verse 12 says. There are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you. Lie, they do. They neither serve your gods. Nebuchadnezzar already knew that. They served their god, Yahweh. And they do not worship the image of gold you set up. Now that's the only new information right here. What's interesting is chapter three doesn't tell us how the rest of the Jewish exiles, including Daniel, responded to this edict by Nebuchadnezzar to come and worship and bow down before the golden image. It it is not a story about everybody. It's only a story about three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends who came with him, carried away captive along with him from Jerusalem, It's about them not complying. And we don't know how they didn't comply. They might have refused to show up at the dedication event, or maybe they're at the dedication event and they refused to bow down when the orchestra struck up the tune. But one thing's for sure, they weren't making a big deal about their non-compliance. If not for the jealousy of the astrologers, Nebuchadnezzar would have never found out that they weren't bowing down to the image. In other words, they weren't posting about it. They weren't tweeting about it. They were just minding their own business, living before God in Babylon, obeying God in Babylon. Regardless, the news of the noncompliance absolutely infuriated Nebuchadnezzar, who summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and first did this. He asked them a question, is this really true? I think he knew the motives of the astrologers. He knew their jealousy. So we said, first of all, is this true? Yes, it's true. Okay, I'm gonna give you a second chance then. When you hear the orchestra, strike up the tune, all you gotta do is, is bow down. Go ahead, do it, it's harmless. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't give anybody else that second chance, but they, he did these guys, they had some favor with them. But then he said, he turns around, and he says, but if you don't do it, if you don't do it, there's gonna be some punishment. For you. 
He says, but if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, (laughs) nebby, nebby, nebby. (laughs) We're on a long journey with this guy, and there's going to be a good ending to this, okay? We got to wait a chapter or two, but he should have known. Right? He should have known the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was totally able to rescue them from his hand because that's exactly what God did before Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, were under the sentence of death. And God rescued them by giving Daniel the content and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But it seems as if he's forgotten that, or at least practically forgotten. Forgotten in a way that it affected his behavior. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have not forgotten what God did. They remember, and because of it, they don't even pause for a moment to consider Nebuchadnezzar's offer. They don't even pause for a moment to consider Nebuchadnezzar's warning. They already knew where they stood and why they stood there. They had already wrestled through the whole issue of lordship. In the New Testament, Jesus is Lord of my life. For them, Yahweh is Lord of my life. They had already settled that. You gotta settle that. They knew God was sovereign. They knew scripture was true. And they were willing to die for their convictions. Now. While we may not be threatened with the loss of life for our biblical convictions, Babylon will always threaten you with the loss of something. There will always be loss for a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Always. It may be a loss of acceptance or love or popularity, or wealth, or security, or comfort, or power, or pressing. We're going to lose something. Because Babylon is going to threaten to take something away in order to manipulate you to compromise your walk with God, to demote God. Babylon's going to try to get you to demote God. That's why Jesus said, look, if you want to be my disciple, you got to count the cost. What does that mean to you? There's a, there's a cost. Now, salvation doesn't cost. Salvation's free. The forgiveness of sin is free. The gift of eternal life is free. That cost, that infinitely great cost, was paid by God the Father by sending his son. Salvation is free, forgiveness is free, but being a disciple of Jesus, it costs you something. Count the cost, he said. If you want to follow me, count, count the cost. But whatever that cost is in life, whatever Babylon threatens us with, whatever that cost is, the reward of following Jesus is infinitely greater than any cost Babylon might try to extract from you. This is what the Apostle Paul means in Romans chapter 8 when he says, I consider that our present sufferings, what's that? The cost of following Jesus. 
our, pre- our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. There's a reward, a great reward in the next life and even a reward in this life because the Scripture says in Hebrews that God rewards those. He rewards those who diligently seek after Him. That reward is in this life. There's a reward in this life and there's a reward in the next. So verse 16 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I, you know, they're respectful, but they're not apologetic. Did you notice that? They don't, they don't do this, because here's what we would do. You know, King, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I just can't obey that. They don't do that, do they? I like that. I like these guys. We have no need to defend ourselves in this matter. If, verse 17, we're thrown into the blazing furnace. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, if there's genuine faith in your heart, at that point of the story, you want to stand up and pump your fist a little bit, don't you? Like, go, guys, go. Right on. Something, right? Something. But there's something else that this this response reveals. It reveals something about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First, that they had a a great faith in, in the power of God. Tremendous faith in God. They said, look, our God is able. We can stop right there. There's a sermon. Our God is able. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, the furnace. And notice the next thing, number two, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, just where did that faith come from? Well, from their experience, I would think, in chapter two. I mean, here they are about to die. They're walking to the the executioner's place. And all of a sudden, there's an intervention. God has showed up, given Daniel in the night the interpretation of the dream. Everybody's going to be okay. Thank you, Lord. They saw that. They experienced that. God, they experienced God coming through for them. So they knew this could happen again. They had faith. But I think really, primarily, their, their faith came from what they knew about God revealed in the Scripture. And perhaps a particular scripture, a prophetic word that God spoke through Isaiah about 150 years before this event in Babylon, 150 years prior, God through Babylon, through Isaiah, spoke a word to this exile generation in Babylon 150 years prior. And basically what he said, God promised that although the people would rebel against him, and they did, He would bring them to repentance through Babylon and then redeem them out of Babylon. And here's the reason. He goes, because I love you, even though you've been unfaithful to me, even though you've worshiped other gods, even though you sold your soul to idols, I will redeem you because I love you for no other reason than I love you. Here's the way he said it to them in Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. 
And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. See, now what God promised to the entire nation of Israel exiles in Babylon was in part fulfilled in this event in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they had great faith. And the reason they had great faith in the power of God is because they had great faith in the promise of God. There is no great faith in the power of God without great faith in the promises of God, in the Word of God. But the second thing they have that's revealed in their responses, they had, they had great faith in the wisdom of God. Now, the wisdom of God, of course, is God does everything perfect. He does it the best possible thing for the best possible reasons for the best possible outcome. He's not trying to figure this thing out as he goes. He's an all-wise God. So they had great faith in the wisdom of God, too, not just the power of God, but the wisdom of God, and that's seen in the second half of the reply. Okay, our God is able, our God will, third part, but even if he does not, why? Because in his wisdom, maybe he has some higher purpose in our suffering or our death. But regardless, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So what you have to see here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith was not in their outcome. It was in their God. There's a difference, and I want you to see that this morning. And that was Paul's sentiment, too, when, when he uh, was uh, under the threat of death in Philippians chapter 1. He, he basically says, no matter what happens, whether I live or, my, or I die, the one thing's important to me is that God would be exalted, either in my life or in my death, but that God would be exalted. Now, that's the same thing these three Hebrew children were saying right here. Whatever it is, I trust the wisdom of God with the outcome. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this. If God delivered them, his name would be exalted. That's an easy one. They also knew if God allowed them to die in the furnace, that his name would be exalted. You say, how so? Well, because their death would say, this is how much this God is worth. He's worth more than anything, even my own life. When you boil it down, you know what they were saying? They were saying, we will serve God and we will love God for God himself, not for what he can do for us. Now, when you get to that place is when you're really maturing as a Christian. When you say, I'll love him and I'll serve him, not for what he can do for me, but primarily for who he is alone. Primarily. Right? Not for what he will do for us, but for who he is. Not for what we can get from him, but for who he is. Now, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm kind of telling the rest of the story here, but if they, if they would have burned up in the flames, their death would have not been a failure of their faith, but rather an expression of, of their faith. In fact, maybe even more faith. 
Their faith would have been just like the rest of those in Hebrews chapter 11. You know that great hall of fame of faith. It lists the, the faith greats there in Hebrews 11. says that they, through faith, conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. That's Daniel. Quenched the fury of the flames. That could be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They escaped the edge of the sword. They became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, we're still talking here about the same group of faith greats. And verse 35 goes on to say there were others who were tortured by faith. By faith, they faced jeers and flogging. By faith, they faced chains and imprisonment. Wait a second, wait a second. You mean they weren't powerful in battle? No. They were in chains. By faith, they were in prison. They were killed by the sword. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by stoning. They wandered in the deserts, the mountains. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. As you can see, I'm not a fan of the prosperity gospel. done a lot to wreck people's lives. There's another side here that you have to see about what true biblical faith is. Faith means trusting God no matter what the outcome. Now that doesn't mean, get me now, hear me, that doesn't mean you don't have a desired outcome. Of course you do. I mean, it's not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were walking along, hey, I, I don't know, I feel like frying up in a furnace today. How about you? Well, let's do that, but first let's go down to the beach for a while. You know, of course they wanted to be delivered from the fiery furnace. But their faith was not in the outcome. Their faith was in God, who's sovereign over the outcome. Just like in Acts 12, you got Peter and you got James. Two leaders in the early church, James the pastor in Jerusalem, Peter the apostle, they're both arrested. James is beheaded, Peter is sprung out of the prison by an angel. They were both prayed for. You gotta leave the outcome in God's hands. One died by faith, one lived by faith. Just like Paul said, whether I live, whether I die, that Christ would be exalted. That is faith. Early on in my Christian life, I kind of confused the two, trusting for the outcome and trusting God. You know, I had a few things that I was believing God for and thought to myself, if I could be obedient enough and if I could um, grow my faith enough that I'd eventually get to the point where I could receive these, these things that I was wanting from God. But then I came across a verse that said, even if I had faith as small as a mustard seed, that I could say to a mountain, be thou removed and be cast in the sea. And I knew I at least had faith the size of a small mustard seed. And so 
Originally, I was thinking, well, I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith. And then when I read that, I go, I must have enough faith. And then I started, and I wouldn't admit it to anybody, but I started thinking, well, maybe God just isn't going to come through for me. I went from doubting my own faith to, to, to doubting God's integrity. I wouldn't tell anybody that. But eventually, eventually, I was able to sort it out. I realized that my faith wasn't purely in God. It was in God plus my desired outcome. I had balled up faith in God and faith for something in one entity, if you will. The thing that I really pinned my hopes on was the outcome instead of God himself. Now, it turned out some of those desired outcomes were graciously provided by God, some were not. But I came to the point where it it didn't make any difference to me. It didn't alter my faith in God because I realized that God is not only a gracious God who meets our needs, He is a sovereign God who brings all things, who works in all things for our good. I began to realize that too. That began to be a part of my life. And so that really stabilized me. I was no longer criticizing and condemning my own lack of faith or exhibiting unbelief in God, I realize these two things work together and that I have to keep my faith in God superior above all and not confuse that with my faith for the outcome. That's what Daniel, that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God is able, our God will, but if he doesn't, there's a great pattern for life right there. Always start. Our God is able. Always go. And He will, if I can find it in Scripture. But you know what? In His wisdom, if He decides to work another way, I'm fine with that too. I'm still not going to bow, and I'm always going to trust. Now, I don't understand all of those workings. You know, in all things, God works. I don't understand all of those workings, but I know I can trust Him and follow His will for my life, even through the trials. And the reason... The reason that I can is, is, this, is I have a confidence that doesn't come from me. It actually is found in the second part of this passage. I want to show it to you. Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. The king, verse 22, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Apparently, they kind of broke protocol. They got fried. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Ah, he's starting to change again here. (laughs) He's, He's an up and down guy, isn't he? Come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came up out of the fire And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, 
There's so much here, we don't have enough time. Let's just cut right to the chase, okay? When Nebuchadnezzar said, the fourth man looks like a son of the gods, what he was saying was, there's something unique about this fourth one. They're all in the fire, right? There's three, but this fourth one is different. There's something divine here. In verse 28, he will call this fourth man God's angel, otherwise known as the angel of the Lord. Now, angels are spoken of, of course, in the Old and New Testaments alike, but in the Old Testament, there's one angel in particular that is known as the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord is not like Gabriel or or Michael or any other angel. When they meet a human being, they identify themselves as a fellow servant of God. And if human beings try to worship them, they refuse that worship. But this, this particular angel, the angel of the Lord, does not refuse worship. And in the Old Testament, always speaks as God because this angel of the Lord is God. God taking on visible form, which in theological terms is called a theophany. Theos, God, or theos, God. Phanos, uh, uh, it's a, a appearing. So it's God appearing as a man. In fact, more specifically, not a, a, uh, uh, a theophany, but a Christophany. That's Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, appearing as a man. So what we have here in the fire is the fourth man whose name is Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnation appearance of the Son of God. And I'm telling you, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not yet thought of Isaiah 43, they certainly would at this moment, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Now, in the Bible, Fire is often used to describe trials. A few weeks ago, we were reading a scripture over in 1 Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And when you're in a fiery trial, there's nothing more valuable than knowing that the fourth man, that the angel of the Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is with you in that fiery trial. You know what? You can walk through anything in life if you know that Jesus is with you. There's nothing more valuable. I I was thinking about this other day. What would be more valuable? I was trying to think about it, just running thoughts through my head. And I came to the conclusion there's nothing more valuable to me in this life than knowing he's with me no matter what. The promise from Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Greek says, no, not ever. Nothing more valuable than than having that conviction. Believer, even if the fiery trial is because of your own sin or rebellion or idolatry, The truth remains the same. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Whether you are suffering before righteousness' sake or stupidness' sake, 
the promise is he will never leave you. He will always be with you in the fire, in the tribulation of life. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And if you know that, if you have that conviction deep within you, if you have that assurance, you can go through anything. You can face anything. You can face anything if you know if God be for us, who can be against us, right? You say, now I know that's true, Jeff. I know that's true doctrinally. I know that's true scripturally. But here, here, here's something. I know it's true, but I often, I do not sense that he is with me in the fiery trial. I know he is, but often I don't sense that he is. I don't have that conviction that you're talking about. Well, the answer for that dilemma is found in something that Nebuchadnezzar says right at the end of this passage. Let's read verse 28. We're rounding the bend, okay? Are you hanging with me? We're just round the third corner right here, heading for the finish line. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their homes be turned into piles of rubble. Apparently, this is the only threat that Nebuchadnezzar had because he's used it before and here we see it again. But then he says something that's right on. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, remember that. No other God can save this way. I mentioned earlier that fire is used in the Bible to describe trials. Fire is also used in the Bible to describe God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's punishment of sin. And it was that very wrath that Jesus began to anticipate in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knelt there all alone and began to sweat great drops of blood, the Bible says, as he was praying. So intense was his preview of what was to come. He asked the Father, if there be any way that this cup can pass from me. But then he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There he was. Disciples were all asleep. He's all alone. And he is in absolute agony at this moment because right at this moment, there is a sense in which he is looking down over the precipice into the furnace of God's wrath, which he was about to be cast as he hung on the cross. It was a furnace that was infinitely worse than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, and it overwhelmed him to the point where his capillaries and his skin begin to burst and blood begin to drip out of his pores because of the intense pressure, the anticipation of bearing this wrath of this judgment for sin. And he was willing to endure all of that and more and the horrors of the cross to come because... You remember over in Isaiah? I'm going to redeem you. Why? God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. What's the motive? God's love. We see it right here because he loved us. This is the motive. Here's what he's doing. He's looking over the chasm into the fire, into the furnace of God's wrath that he'll bear for us on the cross. Why? Because he, because he loved us even though we did not love him. And this is where the gospel begins. We did not nor have we ever, without fault, loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loved our neighbor as ourselves. And that is the source of all sin. And sin is so grievous in the eyes of holy God, the only eyes that count, that it is worthy of the furnace of judgment. On the cross, Jesus entered that ultimate furnace of judgment for us, the furnace we deserved. And here's where Nebuchadnezzar's words become prophetic. He said, no other God can save this way. No other God enters the fire to save you. See, every other religion boils down to you doing something to merit salvation. Live a good life. Follow these rules. Do this or that, and you'll be saved from the furnace. Christianity boils down to a God who loved you so much, he goes in the furnace for you. He goes in the furnace of wrath as your substitute to take the flames of judgment for you. No other God saves this way. And that is the ultimate message of this passage. It is the gospel according to Daniel. If you think about it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have been delivered from this furnace any number of other ways. God could have put the fire out before they even went in. God could have snatched them out of the fire supernaturally, but instead he entered the fire to deliver them, and this is intended to foreshadow the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say it all the time around here, one book, one story, one hero, one book, the Bible. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus. It's the gospel, and Jesus is the hero in the story. The Old Testament is as much about Jesus as the New Testament is, and here we see it right here. In fact, Jesus even said that. He said, the Old Testament's about me. If you read it carefully, after he was crucified and rose from the dead, nobody knew, he met two of these disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. They were greatly despondent about the events that had taken place. Their savior, the one they thought was gonna be the king over Israel, was dead. He had died on a cross, he was crucified. He's walking along with them. He says, why are you so dejected? He said, they say, haven't you heard? Everybody knows what's gone on around here these last few days. They explain it to him. Then he kind of rebukes him. He says, oh, slow of heart, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Don't you know that these things had to happen? And then verse 27 of Luke 24 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Daniel, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, that'd have been a great Bible lesson to be in, right? I mean, that is a, you talk about the best teacher. There he is, right? And I'm sure that some of the prophets, it says he explained to them about himself from all the prophets. Daniel was a prophet. No doubt, I'm thinking, I don't know for sure, but he stopped by Daniel chapter three on that little 
trip through the Scriptures and talked about Daniel and the fourth man. There I am. There he is taking our judgment for us. That's what happened on that cross yesterday. That's why he died on that cross. He entered the furnace for you. Jesus bore our sin. He took the penalty that we rightly deserve. And when we believe that, the Bible says that we are saved from the furnace and that all of our sins are forgiven, that we'll live for him, with him forever, and that we have complete access to him. We have Jesus' own moral record that he earned by perfectly obeying God's law. God says, here, that's how you're going to interface with me now through Jesus. And so when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees his son. Wow. All right, back to the point. You say, what's the point? I don't know, I forgot by now. <laughs> Just sounded like a nice thing to say right then. Okay, the point is this. I know that he's with me in the fiery trial. I know he's with me, but I often don't sense that he's with me. Well, here's the answer, okay? The more you realize that Jesus loved you so much that he entered the ultimate furnace of God's wrath for you, the more you realize that and believe that, the more you will sense him walking with you through the fiery trials of life. See, the more you begin to rehearse the gospel and appreciate the gospel to the point where God's love begins to melt you, the more you're going to sense the Lord walking with you through the fiery trials of life, the more confidence you're going to have. You know, I know He is with me right now. You also begin to sense His worthiness in all of this, and it will increase within you this resolve to be loyal to your Savior and to not bow to anything in Babylon, to not bow to any, any idol, but by the power of His grace, endeavor to love Him even more with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads. You're here this morning and you've never believed. The gospel is this, Jesus took your place on the cross. We have all sinned, we've fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. And that sin must be judged because God is holy, but he's also loving. And in his love, he gives us his son, a substitute, to take the penalty in our place. And when we believed on him, when we believe him, when we believe on Christ, the Bible says we are saved or delivered from our sin. We are given the gift of eternal life and we live forever with God. But you got to believe it. It's not enough to know it. There's a belief. There's a moment where you go, that's for me. If you're here this morning and you're saying, that's for me, I want you to confess this with me as a prayer. I believe in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for my sin, and that he rose again to make me right with God. From this moment forward, 
I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. I am forgiven by the fourth man. Amen. 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 Let's all stand up. If you need prayer for anything, we're going to have some uh, prayer workers up here at the altar following the service. If not, have a great Sunday. Enjoy your, your day. See you back here next week for more of Daniel. Jesus the Lord.